Go ahead and grab your seat, grab your Bible if you have it, and open to Genesis 18. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers up front here are walking towards the back, and we would love to put a Bible in your hand. So just slip your hand up in the air. We'll get a Bible across to you, and we trust that this will be a blessing to you. It'll allow you to follow along in God's Word as we study it together today. And if you don't own a Bible, then just keep this one. It's our gift to you today. It'd be a joy for us to give it to you. Trust that you would take it home, read it, and uh, hear from the Lord on a regular basis. A happy Father's Day, by the way, to all, all the fathers in the room. I'm thankful to God for you and uh, trust that you are already having a sweet day with your family, blessed by the Lord. And uh, I just want to say it's good to be back. I've been out of the pulpit, haven't preached in a few weeks here. I was preaching in Texas. We had Dave Harvey here last week. And uh, I'm back in this week, but uh, then I'll be gone for the next three. So this kind of feels like a little bit of a layover for me. Um, and uh, I've, I've just been a busy summer and our busy beginning of the summer. Normally, I'm out of the pulpit a little later in the summer. This year, things have got kind of shuffled around a bit, so I'm going to be out a little bit uh, more early in the summer, and I'll be back for the, most of the, the remainder of the summer. And here's what that means as we're going to study God's Word, not only today, but um, going into the summer. I'm going to preach from Genesis. That's the book we've been studying, uh, chapter 18 today. And then next week, we're going to kick off our summer series um, called Gospel Impact. Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit, and we're going to spend most of the summer looking at the Fruit of the Spirit, but because my schedule has kind of been interrupted a little bit, and I thought I had things planned out, and then just things got thrown off, I'm going to come back in a few weeks and take us back into a midsummer series, in the midst of our summer series, back into Genesis. And I want to do two more sermons, and here, here's part of the reason why. I don't want to kick off the ministry year with Sodom and Gomorrah next year. <laughs> Didn't think that was right. Didn't feel good about that. And so um, we're going to just take a quick break, and then we'll spend the rest of the summer after that going through the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. Um, in, in some ways, like I, I mentioned, this kind of does feel like a quick layover as I'm kind of having to, to move around and I'm traveling around. You know, be back. I'm going to be gone in a destination wedding for my brother-in-law next week in Mexico, and then I'm off to the U.S. I'm going to be preaching at a couple churches and enjoying a bit of family vacation there as well. And so it, this kind of feels like I'm just kind of stopping in before I get back out. And it's fitting because this chapter is kind of like a bit of a layover. Um, God is stopping over to visit Abraham while he is kind of on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah. And you need to understand that chapter 18 and 19 are a package deal. Um, and they, they really go together. Chapter 19 is when he goes down into Sodom and Gomorrah, where the two angels go down into Sodom and Gomorrah. But here first, God wants to stop over in a very intentional way. And he needs to meet with Abraham in order to confirm the covenant that he has made with Abraham in the previous chapters, but also to call Abraham into his plan for the world. And that's exactly what we see here. And I want to just give you the big idea here of this message up front, okay? Because what's going on with Abraham has direct relevance for us today. Here's the big idea. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. Above all things, here it is. God is working in us in order to work through us. God is working in us in order to work through us. We have a redemptive faith. God redeems us in order to then use us to further accomplish his plan of redemption for the world. Instantly, when you are saved by the grace of God, you are instilled with new purpose in your life. A greater purpose, a higher purpose than anything you could ever find in this world, in your career, in your family. You are being called by God to participate in his plan to reach the world with the good news of the gospel. We see that here with Abraham. I want to just read the whole chapter. It's long, so follow with me. We're going to read the whole thing up front, and then we're going to pull it apart in four separate chunks. Chapter 18, it says this, beginning in verse 1, And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. 
and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourself and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still, uh, still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the, the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous persons who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place. For their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Let me pray one more time. Well, Father, this is a, a heavy text, and God, there's so much in here to learn. I, I just ask, Spirit of God, that you would instruct us and teach us and help us Give us a greater glimpse of your glory, of your mercy and compassion. Help us to understand our calling to this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to show you that redemptive faith requires four things. Four things. The first thing is this, covenantal communion. 
covenantal communion. The, the chapter begins, remember chapter 17, the Lord had given to Abraham uh, the covenant sign of circumcision, and he had reminded him that he was going to have a child. And so not a whole lot of time has passed between chapter 17 and 18, but all of a, a sudden, three what appear to be men show up while Abraham is sitting at the door of his tent And the suddenness of their appearance alerts us to the reality of what's taking place here. We know what Abraham does not yet know. He senses that there is something important about these men. They are different and unique. There's something different and extraordinary about them. We become aware very quickly in this account that it is actually the Lord, God himself, who shows up with two angels. This is what theologians refer to as a theophany. God showing up in a unique way to his people. And I don't think at first, immediately, that Abraham understood who these men were. In fact, I believe that Hebrews 13 chapter 2, along with many others, um, is referring to this passage right here. Hebrews 13 2 talks about not neglecting to show hospitality because some have actually, by doing so, you know, entertained angels unawares. I think Abraham is the guy who's unaware that he's entertaining angels. And it's fascinating what begins to take place here. Abraham sees these men, and he shows this incredible degree of hospitality. Now, you'll notice, if you were following along, I tried to emphasize the speed at which Abraham moves. Everything is rapid and quick, and he's wanting to quickly serve these men. He bows down. He shows deference. He understands that these men are, some, in some sense, superior to him. And the speed at which he moves and and the amount of food he prepares is trying to show us that there is a humble kind of hospitality that is filled with generosity and honor. He's just heaping it upon these guys. Why why is he, he doing this then? If he doesn't understand this is the Lord yet, by the way, I think verse 10 is where we understand he understands this is the Lord. There is a shift in the language. The first time he says Lord, it's the Hebrew word Adonai, which simply means master. The second time in verse 10 it's used, it's used as Yahweh. And it's there that God reveals something that only God would know. But why is he showing this kind of hospitality then if he doesn't believe yet that this is God? The simple answer is this. He's simply being a good Bedouin. This actually was common practice in the ancient world. In fact, Um, hospitality was and still is in many places the number one virtue. It's a way of demonstrating your care for people, particularly strangers. Um, I've experienced this in other parts of the world. I remember being in Nepal. I was doing ministry there for a number of years and one of the things that fascinated me was how they tried to honor people. Now, Nepal is an incredibly poor country. I mean, really poor. It's so poor that the average house would eat meat, if they're lucky, twice a month. Put that in perspective next time you go to Costco. They they live off of a diet of meager vegetables and rice and maybe some beans, and it's a real special privilege for them to have meat, chicken or goat. At one point, we were preaching in a a village. We had to walk a number of hours to get into this village church, but somebody from the church had done a round trip of six hours to go and get a goat, something that these people would hardly ever get to eat in their context, to bring it for us to have a feast together at the church. I remember being in another little village home where a family in the church wanted to have us pastors over to just care for us and and express gratitude. They didn't speak a word of English, but we walked into this little hut and, and a little mud stove in the corner, family living in this tiny little space, and there they are cooking a meal for us, and, and, and they sacrificed um, their chicken that they should have eaten to serve us. And what they do is so fascinating. They make this food, and then they want you to eat the food while they stand and watch. And then once you're done, they want you to take a second plate while they watch. Some of you know this in your cultures too, too, right? And you feel guilty doing it, but it's their way of showing honor, and that's exactly what Abraham is doing here. 
But there's something else going on. You see, what's happening is that, is that Moses is, a, is, is showing a radical contrast between Abraham and what's to come in Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so what we're going to see here is that Abraham is a man who is incredibly hospitable and generous and sacrificial. He's selfless because he's part of the people of God. But then you're going to see an awesome contrast, a disgusting contrast with Sodom and Gomorrah who are actually condemned for their lack of hospitality, for their oppression, injustice, and self-indulgence. And so Moses is setting up this intentional contrast for us to pay attention to. And I just think maybe, listen, as a, a great point of application, for us, uh, one of the ways we can stick out in our world that maybe is self-indulgent and loves luxury and comfort and is willing to oppress people to get whatever they want and what they need is by being like Abraham and and showing immense, generous, sacrificial hospitality. In fact, Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 15. He says that God has welcomed us, and so we welcome others. God has been hospitable to us, and so we are to be hospitable to others. So here's what I'm saying to you. Listen, this kind of hospitality shouldn't just be cultural. It should be Christian. This should be how we set ourselves apart. What's significant, though, about this moment? This is not just about hospitality. There's something unique going on in this moment and at this meal. You see, in the ancient world, and especially in Israel, to eat together was actually important for the making of treaties and confirming of covenants. Remember, the whole context here leading up to this is God making this covenant with Abraham. He promised him land, seed, and blessing to the nations, and he's, he's given him a covenant sign. But now what we see is this meal is God's way of drawing near to Abraham in order to confirm the promise that he's made to him. When the Lord is ready to confirm the fulfillment of the promised son, he came personally And he ate a meal in Abraham's tent. And nothing in the ancient world in particular could have communicated the close relationship of the covenant better than this. The meal with Abraham was an exercise in spiritual intimacy. You can think of it like this. Here is Abraham who is going to awaken to the reality that it is God himself who has shown up in his humble little tent. But but what we see here is an expression of intimacy with the infinite. He is dining with the creator of the universe. And we can read over that and, and think like this is some kind of normal event that just happens to anyone. This is the first and only time it happens in the Old Testament. It's incredibly significant. And nothing could have communicated the intimacy that God had called Abraham into better than this. And by the way, this is most likely the passage that's being referred to when three times in the Bible, Abraham is called a friend of God. No passage directly states that, God, that Abraham is a friend of God in terms of you know, an event where God says, you are my friend. But, but here, we see the makings of that friendship put on full display. Let me give you an example of one of these passages. Isaiah 41.8, listen to what it says. It says, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. A term of intimacy expressed in this covenant fellowship, this meal. If you want to look them up later, James 2, 23, Abraham's called a friend of God, Chronicles 20, verse 7. But you see, through the ages, fellowship with God has been signified by a communal meal. Think of the people of God who would have been reading this, by the way. Remember, Moses wrote this to the people of God who had come out of Egypt in the Exodus. God had instituted that Passover meal, this community meal that was demonstrating a covenant fellowship and community with God, this communion with God. Jesus transforms the Passover meal on on that night as he sat with his disciples and he converts it or transforms it because he's fulfilling the Passover meal and he converts it or transforms it into the Lord's Supper. 
And the Lord's Supper becomes a regular practice in the life of the church. Listen, whereby, this is fascinating, we are not only being reminded of what Jesus Christ has done in giving his life for ours, in dying in our place, we are being reminded that because Jesus did this, we are actually brought into covenant, communion, and fellowship, and friendship with God. You realize that? When we celebrate communion, you know what you should be thinking as you're taking this? Thank you that you are my friend. And we see, interestingly, Jesus gives this language to his disciples. Listen to what he says in John 15, verses 15 and 16. I'll put it on the screen for you. He says this to his disciples. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I, listen to this, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. What distinguishes a servant from a friend, according to Jesus, is that they know the plan of their master. And that's exactly, isn't it amazing what God is doing with Abraham in this passage? He's drawing near so we can actually communicate his plan, his plan to use Abraham to be a blessing to the nations of the world. In the same way, if you're in Christ today, you are not just a servant, though you are that of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a friend because you know the master's plan. He has communicated his plan to you, his plan to reach the world with the good news of Jesus Christ, and he has called you to be a part of it. He has chosen you to be a part of that program. You see, God is working in us in order to work through us. And the reassurance of that and strength for that comes through communion with our Lord. That's where it all begins and it all ends. And so maybe, again, as a practical application, can I just ask you, what does your communion with the Lord actually look like? Do you actually have rich fellowship with the Lord? I mean, I mean where, where you are actually on a friend kind of level with the Lord, where you talk with him, where you hear him talking to you, where you laugh and weep and cry and pray and all of the things that are included in a deep, intimate kind of friendship. Do you feast on the gospel? Do you feast on the word of God? I love Psalm 105, verse four, it says, seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually. Does that, does that characterize you as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ? Secondly, redemptive faith requires bold belief. This wasn't all about Abraham, and we shift gears into verse nine, and you, we, we read this, so we'll, we'll just kind of briefly summarize what's happening here, but here now, we see the focus turning to Sarah. Before this, God had only spoken to Abraham, and so now Sarah is in view. Sarah, at this point, is a barren woman. She's old, and so is Abraham. He's like 100, she's about 90, and, and I mean, that's pretty old. She's just a barren woman, which, which is, a, which is a, almost like a death sentence in the ancient world. It, it, it's, it's an awful reality to be a barren woman in the ancient world where children are so prized and so needed, and so to not be able to, to bear children, to produce children, is a, a devastating reality. And so you just need to see that here, here is a woman who feels useless, she feels hopeless, she feels helpless. Not only has she been infertile all her life, she's, she's 90 and she's postmenopausal. The promise that she would be a mother next year, that was the promise. Next year, you're going to be a mom. It was absurd to her. This made no sense. I mean, they're old and worn out. And so what's her response to this news? By the way, you have to envision the scene. She's not actually a part of the conversation. She's kind of behind these guys, and she's kind of in the tent. She's just kind of eavesdropping, okay? And, and, uh, and she's hearing this conversation, and the conversation between these, these angels and Abraham, and so she hears it, and what does she do? She laughs to herself. Now, I don't know if you've ever had one of those experiences where 
you know, you kind of are looking around the room, you're like, did I just say that what I was thinking out loud? Without... That's not what's happening here. This is, this is the omniscience of God on display. The all-knowing God knows exactly what's going on in her heart, in her mind, in her head. He knows exactly what she's thinking, and he's about to kind of expose it and put her unbelief on the table. And so he gently asks this question to Abraham, again, knowing that Sarah is within earshot. earshot. Why did Sarah laugh? Listen, there's, there's the laughter of hope and the laughter of hopelessness. We know what it is to have the laughter of hope, that just unbelievable laughter of, of joy, the hope of something to come, the hope of a news of a, the birth of a child, or something like that. But, but that's not what this is. This is the laugh of hopelessness. This is the laugh of unbelief. Almost as if this is some kind of cruel joke that the Lord would say this when she's 90 years old, unable to have children. How can the Lord say this? That's heartless. That, that's, that's not right. That's mean-spirited. Kind of a God would say something like that. And you know, God knows all of our struggles, doesn't he? He knows all of our heartaches. He knows all of our fears, our failures, all of our frustrations. He knows all those deep, dark places of despair and hopelessness that we've been, maybe that we're inclined to go. And the line here, I really believe, is at the really heart of this this chapter. It, It penetrates like few other things, at least it's intended to. It's supposed to drive just straight into the heart of Sarah, and it's supposed to drive straight into the heart of you and I. And here's what the Lord says when he exposes her laughter. He says this with such penetrating insight into the human heart. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And you'll notice there, there's a, in my Bible, there's a footnote. Is there, if you look at that word, that's, let's just look at, look at verse 14. If you don't have that, that verse underlined, I might encourage you to do that. If you're a good Christian and you're not afraid to mark up your Bible. Just kidding. But mine has a, a footnote there, and if you drop down to the footnote, here's what mine says. Um, for the word hard it, or wonderful. And in the Hebrew, that, that is a legitimate way to translate this, this word. And I actually think that better captures the sense of what he's trying to communicate to her. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's the difference between saying, is anything too difficult for the Lord? And is anything too incredible for the Lord? Do you see the difference? Like one's like there's a mere obstacle. The other one's like God's wanting to wow you. <laughs> And here, that's the sense that he's saying to her, don't you see, Sarah, is anything too incredible for the Lord? Is anything too marvelous for the Lord? Is there anything that's too wonderful to the Lord? Don't you see, Sarah, that I want you to stand in wonder at what I'm about to do for you? I want you to to stand amazed. We sing this, don't we? I stand amazed. How marvelous. How wonderful. I mean, there's a sense of awe that's supposed to spring up in our hearts when we see the power of God to do something remarkable. And this is surely something remarkable. You know know what? Here's what I'm saying. This is an invitation for you and me to wonder. You know, I, I really believe, and I've seen this at times in my own life, you know, how easy it is, it is it for us to lose our wonder at the grace of God? How easy is it for us to turn to apathy instead of amazement when we think about who our God is and what our God does? It's incredibly easy. You know, we often feel this wonder when we, when we think about other people, right? We, we, can, we can look at other people giving their testimonies and think like, man, that's an awesome testimony. Look what God did in their life. That's incredible. But that's not my story. You know, maybe you're looking at someone like, well, oh, man, they're, they, were, they were steeped in drugs and immorality. They were so far from the Lord. And, and like God just did something so incredible to rescue them from their sins. And me, I just grew up in a Christian family. And I was just this little Christian kid who was weird at school. But can, can I just say to you today, listen, if that's the way you think 
about God's saving work, you're totally missing the goodness and greatness of the grace of the gospel, okay? There are no ordinary testimonies. Do you realize that? There's not one testimony of God's saving work in this room that is ordinary. Every single one is extraordinary. It's miraculous. In fact, the greatest miracle the world has ever seen is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the resurrection to life of all those who believe in him. There's no ordinary testimony. Why? Because we we were all actually in some sense the same. I don't care if you had an unbelievable life of sin or if you had a great life in a Christian home. You, listen to this, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were lost. You were alienated from God. You were without hope in this world but God. That's it. Those are two most powerful words in all of scripture and they hit us like dynamite. They ought to. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he saved us. Not by works, by grace through faith. And we need to recapture that wonder of what God has done in our lives. And this is the question for us from this this text, is anything, listen, too hard for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Maybe some of you, you're here today, you're like, well, this sounds really great, Ian, but you don't know what I've done. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? You have no idea my past life of sin. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? You have no idea the damage I've caused. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Maybe you're a Christian and you're like, but, but I've just been struggling with sin so much in my life. Even now, I, just, I feel utterly useless to the Lord. I feel like I'm so far gone that even though I know I'm saved, I just feel like I've wasted my life and there's no hope in, for any kind of fruitfulness or effectiveness for the Lord. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? The answer? No. Right? God loves to take graves and turn them into gardens. He loves to take brokenness and turn it into beauty. This is how our God works, and he's showing us this. So you see, this is an invitation. It's really the invitation of the gospel. It's an invitation to wonder, to a bold belief in what God can do in you and through you. And God says to all of us, listen, regularly, Come to me with all of your barrenness and all of your brokenness and I will bless you and then I will make you a blessing. You see, God is working in us in order to work through us. So let your heart be filled with wonder at the goodness and greatness of God's grace. And see this next, that redemptive faith requires diligent discipleship. We shift gears a little bit. And in verse 16, the focus comes back to Abraham. By the way, one of the best verses in Genesis. No, but you did laugh. Sorry, I love that verse. I think there's a gentleness with the Lord towards Sarah here. It's firm, but it's gentle. But he shifts gears now and he speaks to Abraham. The two men set out from there. And the Lord remains back. The two men are going to Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, we were kind of introduced into this unique conversation kind of God is having with himself. Shall I reveal what I'm about to do to Abraham? This is not for God's benefit. He's not really confused about what he's doing. This is for our benefit. We're supposed to see in here and be intrigued by the fact that God is letting Abraham into the plan. He's not just letting him into the plan. He's calling him into the plan. And you'll notice there that God's promise would be fulfilled through Abraham. We know that, but again, this is being confirmed and cemented. And he reiterates kind of the Abrahamic covenant or promise in verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. 
He's chosen Abraham to be the conduit through which he is going to bring good news to the world. And part of the way this is going to take place is it's not just going to be Abraham bringing the news. Abraham is being entrusted with the the hope uh, for the nations, but he has to take that hope, he has to take that truth, and he has to begin to pass it along to his children, to those who have been entrusted to him. He has to pass the most important message of the universe on through his household, through his kids and those who are a part of his larger family And by doing this, here's what you need to see. There's a trajectory. By doing this, all the nations of the earth would eventually be blessed. He's essentially saying this. I'm going to save the world, Abraham. And I'm going to do it through your family. The faith that will be passed on from son to son to son to the final son who will save the world. And they, his children, and the nations, they need to believe this truth in order to be saved. And so the importance of what he's commanding Abraham to do here, it cannot be be lightened or made trivial in any way. Abraham's blessing the world would, in part, come through diligent discipleship of his own household. Now, you'll often hear people... In our context, maybe especially, say things like this. They'll say things like, you know what, just believe whatever you want. Or you believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe, and really it's not that big of a deal. There's really no difference. Or, or you hear people say, this is one of my favorites, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something. What? Or, or what's becoming more common in our culture is, why don't you just keep your beliefs to yourself? But you see, all, all of those stand in opposition to the scripture's call on our lives and the message to the world. Jesus said this to the Jews, unless you believe that I am he, that I am God in the flesh, the son of Abraham, you will die in your sins. Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He, he said there is salvation in no other name under heaven. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we, listen, by which we must be saved. There is no other hope for the world. It is faith in Jesus Christ that saves and nothing else. Everything else is a cheap substitute. It is a knockoff, right? Manufactured by Satan himself to keep the world in blindness, dead in their trespasses and sins. Only the gospel of Jesus opens the eyes of the blind and gives them eternal life and eternal hope and freedom. And it's fitting that this text, isn't it? It falls on, um, on Father's Day. Now, we planned to do the parent-child dedication, but we, we didn't plan it to fall on this passage that just reiterates the same kind of you know, discipleship that we already talked about with the parents up here. But let me kind of take it a hammer and drive the nail in just a little bit deeper, okay? Because this is so significant for, for you and for me. This is not just about Abraham. There is a, a parallel here with us because we know that we believe in the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, and we have been then set out, sent out on mission to the nations. And I want you to see that in some ways it begins in your own home. Diligent discipleship begins with the littlest of disciples that have been entrusted to you if you have children. So parents, fathers, let me just remind you, listen, we raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And our objective is to point them, as I said earlier, is to point them to the promised seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Why? So that they may be saved from their sins, right? So that they may believe in in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they might be raised in newness of life and live for the glory of God. This, this is what we do as parents. Your, your, pri- listen, your, your primary purpose, let me frame it like this, as parents is not to raise the next Wayne Gretzky, Connor McDavid if you choose. It, it's, it's not, listen, to raise the next Albert Einstein or Elon Musk. All those things are fine and good. If your child ends up doing that, Fantastic. 
But do you, do you realize that, that the biblical job description for you as a parent is to do everything in your power by the grace of God to point your children to Jesus Christ? It's, it's not just about them becoming the best citizens they can be or respectable children with good manners and good behavior. Your objective is to do everything in your power to, to preach the gospel to their little hearts through thick and thin, to sit with them, to talk with them, to walk with them by the way, to put the word of God before them, to remind them of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, to show them the sinfulness of their sin, to show them that God loved them so much that he came from heaven to earth, that he died on a cross in their place, suffering for their sins, that if they put their faith and trust in him, they too can have eternal life and forgiveness in him. That's your goal. Primary, it's your, listen, it's your primary privilege and primary, therefore, priority. And I want to ask you, parents, is is that true? Is that true of your parenting? Is it happening in your house? And I'm not saying this to shame any of you. In fact, for some of you, you're looking at your your family and you're like, man, I've just dropped the ball on this and I am not doing what I need to be doing. I'm, I'm so consumed with other things. I've got my kids so busy doing everything but things that have to do with the Lord. Listen, here's, here's the good news. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. It's a new day. It's a new day. And today doesn't have to be the same as yesterday. Your schedule in your life doesn't have to look the same as, as it did last week. You, by the grace of God, can make changes. Amen? And maybe some of you need to be thinking here today, I ought to be making changes. I need to be making changes. So that my kids can be saved. So that they can continue, continue the mission by bringing the gospel to the nations. Abraham's call is to be a light to the nations. And I just, you need to see, this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, okay? Who is the son of Abraham, who is the light of the world. And now, because of our union and communion with Christ, we too are lights to the world. We're a city set on a hill. And we can't hide our light under a basket. We gotta let our light shine, right? We start singing a little Sunday school song every Sunday here. We need to let our light shine so that others may see our good works and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. I want to speak to children for just a minute. And there's a lot of children in here. There's a lot of you who are youth, teenagers, you're young. And I I got a chance to kind of go at your parents a little bit, but I need to go at you a little bit. Because you, you need to hear that you're not saved by your parents' faith. You're not, you're not saved because your parents are Christians. You're not saved because you come to church. You're not saved because you don't do as much bad stuff as your friends do. You can't get into heaven. You can't have forgiveness of sins on your parents' faith. What you need to do is you need to embrace the same faith that your parents have embraced. Some of you have been maybe resting a little bit too much on your, your parents' faith, and you've been maybe thinking just, I'm going, I'm going to church all the time, and so I must be saved. But, but listen, the call of the gospel is very clear. You must repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the good news for you today. Maybe you're, you're, you're young in here today, but you have heard the gospel and you've never really surrendered your life to the Lord. Can I just say that God is saying to you, you know, as he said to the little children, come to me. And if you... If you truly believe, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you can be saved today. And you're saved because of the faith that God produces in your own heart, because of the belief that you have in Jesus. This diligent discipleship would send the mission forward to the nations, but I want you to see it's it's again setting up a contrast with the next chapter with Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, the people of God, they, they, they live in a world, and we, we always have, by the way, that desperately needs God, and we'll, we'll need to tell the world. Look at verse 20 and 21 quickly. So then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. The sin that is crying out to the Lord from Sodom and Gomorrah, 
The Hebrew word outcry here is used in scripture to describe the cries of the oppressed and brutalized. It's also used to describe the cry of the oppressed, the widow, and the orphan. Look at what Ezekiel 16.49 says on the screen here. It says this, describing the inhabitants of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. One commentator says the sin of Sodom then is heinous moral and social corruption. It is both moral and social. It's an arrogant disregard, he says, of basic human rights, a cynical insensitivity to the suffering of others. It is a self-indulgent culture who oppresses everyone. It's just, I'll do whatever I want to do, and I don't care who it hurts. I'm not here to help anybody. I'm here to get what I want for me. And we're going to see a display of this in chapter 19. It's just unbelievable. But this unpunished sin is crying out to God for vengeance, like like the blood of Abel that was crying out from the ground in in chapter 4. And here's the idea. Listen, judgment is coming. It's coming. And, and, And you see, it's because that pressure of judgment that's coming, that knowledge that we know judgment is coming, that we see that God is working in us in order to work through us. Our diligent discipleship is part of the means by which God, listen, is rescuing souls from the wrath of come. And there is a sense here we need to feel the urgency. We know the wrath of God is coming. The question is, listen, Christian, what are you doing about it? Who are you telling about it? Who are you seeking to rescue? Right? I mean, when that day comes, it's done. It's over. Fire and sulfur raining down like it was on Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody's destroyed. No more hope. No more chances. Now, you see what God is trying to press into Abraham and into us? Now is the time to get to work. Stop wasting our lives. But you see, it's not the only means that the, the rescuing souls and evangelism and discipleship, it's not the only means of reaching the world, which is why lastly, listen, and quickly, redemptive faith requires intentional intercession. And I want to just wrap this up quickly. It's a long passage, but it's, a, it, it's very kind of repetitive. You see the engagement in this last section, right, as we read it, that Abraham has with the Lord. And, and essentially, he's pleading with the Lord. He's saying, God, don't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there's some righteous people there. I know who you are, God. You're righteous and you're just. And you would never, you would never wipe out the righteous along with the wicked. It's just not who you are. So he appeals to the justice of the judge of the earth to spare the righteous so that they won't be destroyed along with the wicked. And I think Abraham here is wrestling with this legitimate tension between what God has promised and what God is about to do. Right? God said, you're going to be a blessing to the nations, and then on the other hand, I'm going to destroy a nation. And it's a legitimate tension that we're supposed to wrestle through as well. We are going out to make disciples of the nations, knowing that one day Jesus will return and destroy the nations. These things are not in conflict with each other. In fact, being aware of the coming judgment is supposed to fuel the mission of the church, in part. And here what we see is this mission requires intentional intercession, prayer. So Abraham prayed earnestly that Sodom might be spared. And for sure, you gotta be thinking, he's thinking of, of his nephew Lot, right? Maybe Lot has had enough impact there because Lot's not perfect, but he's righteous. He, he's, he believes. 2 Peter 3 tells us that he was righteous, that he hated what was going on all around him. It, it, just, it plagued, it tormented his soul. And so we see Abraham prays. He talks to God. And I just noticed just three things quickly. Notice the understanding of God's supremacy. He knows God's over it all, and so this produces humility as he comes to God. Repeatedly, he demonstrates this humility. Oh, God, if I could just one more time ask of you. Notice the understanding of God's justice. He trusts that God is just. He's going to do what's right. And notice the understanding of God's mercy. He knows. The reason he's pleading this is he knows God is merciful and compassionate. So he goes from 50 to 45 to 10. God says, for the sake of 10, I will spare this city. And what he prays is so instructive for us who look out at a world that in many ways resembles (laughs) Sodom and Gomorrah. I love what Matthew Henry says. 
He says this. He says, come and learn from Abraham what compassion we should feel for sinners and how earnestly we should pray for them. We see here that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Abraham indeed failed in his request for the whole place, but Lot was miraculously delivered. Be encouraged then to expect by earnest prayer the blessing of God upon your families, your friends, and your neighborhood. To this end, you must not only pray, but you must live like Abraham. He knew the judge of all the earth would do right. Abraham's whole intercession rested on this awesome understanding of God. And this is so beautiful, and it's, it's so right, and it's, it's what we must do. Listen, redemptive faith requires intentional intercession because we believe that while we are sent, only God can save. Amen? Awesome. If you said amen, you're going to get after the work of prayer, and we're going to do it right now. We're going to close our service right now by going to the Lord in prayer. So here's what I want to do. Um, uh, we can take the lights down for this. It is smoking hot in here. But I, I just, here's what I want you to do. In, in just groups around you, don't get up and move. Maybe it's your family. Maybe there's a few other people that are sitting around you. Groups three or four maybe. Just pull in tight. And here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to pray. Intercede. You, you have people in your life right now that you know aren't saved. And they need Jesus. They're storing up wrath for the day of wrath, and their only hope is Jesus Christ. You have people in your families, maybe they're your own kids, maybe they're your neighbors that you get to interact with, or colleagues, or fellow students, or, or whoever it may be. And I want to encourage you just to go before the Lord and pray for their soul. Pray that God would send you, but pray that God would save them. Pray that God would give us as a church greater urgency. Pray that God would fuel the mission of this church, that we would understand that we have a redemptive faith. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ to be used by God to see others redeemed for his glory. So just three or four minutes in the groups. If you're not comfortable praying with others, totally get that. No pressure. I just encourage you, you can just sit there and bow and pray in your heart. Uh, God hears your heart, right? We saw. He knows your prayers. So go to the Lord, cry out, and, and do this audibly. Let me encourage you, do this audibly. Short prayers, quick, just a few minutes, and then we're going to respond with one more song. Go ahead, let's do that now. Let's cry out to the Lord in prayer.